Hey everyone, this is Light Entertainment. My name is Francisco and welcome to Conversamos, where we have in-depth conversations about Latinidad on Abiyala. For this episode, we're going to discuss the Red Road, an episode dedicated to the indigenous population on Abiyala and how they transcend and center their culture and heritage. Enjoy. Yeah, yo, is it that wrong? I'm making a song, I'm taking it back for the platform that I formed. Music's helping me transform. I run the reservoir, the predator. I was born and raised in Santa Maria, California. Um, it's on traditional Chumash territory. Uh, and I was raised by immigrant parents. We were a farm working family in, in, el, in Los Campos de Santa Maria, picking strawberries and whatnot. Starting um, with public housing and public assistance. And so, you know, we. we definitely grew up in poverty. Um, I did not grow up learning about my indigeneity from my parents because they didn't know it themselves, um, which is very common for our people to not know that because we were stripped of that from generation to generation. And to identify yourself as an indigenous person in Mexico and throughout Latin America is like one of the last things you want to do to escape racism and discrimination. And so um, even the education through the Mexican school system is very Eurocentric, it's very Spanish centric. Um, and so it isn't about uh, teaching folks that they are also indigenous. And, and I think it also relates back to the um, reasoning as to why we aren't taught that, right? So that we don't come to the understanding that we have a blood right to the land. And so that's done purposefully. Um, it's, it's the de-education of the indigenous people and the indigenous spirit. And so I didn't, I didn't receive that. It wasn't until I went off to community college um, when I became involved in Mecha, Movimiento Estudiantil Chicano de Aslan. Um, and I started to understand well, what is Aslan and understanding that Aslan is the Southwest of the United States that once belonged to Mexico and that our ancestors, our indigenous ancestors started in, you know, first lived in the Southwest of the United States and then migrated South to um, the Valley of Mexico. And so then I started to look more into that and, and try to discover more about my identity, right? But that happened through the politicization of, of my um, intellectualism by being an active uh, mechista, uh, Chicana student through this um, student organization. Yeah, so I was born in Queens and the thing about Queens is that you have all of these cultures meeting together. A lot of immigrant cultures. I've met Tibetan folks. I've met Filipino folks. I've met different folks from across Latin America. Um, and it's this wide, like, melting pot of uh, the world's cultures all in one. But there's a, there's a missing part of indigenous peoples as ever having existed here. And I think that's one of the narratives of immigration, that this is everyone's land. Um, when that when that lens of immigration is done through settler colonialism, that it can only be everyone's land once you've rid the natives of it. Um, and I, as I grew up, I grew up kind of confused about my own like identity. At first, I didn't even know I was Bolivian. It was just something that was kind of strange because I was kind of estranged um, from like the cultural, from the culture, and from um, any form of politics. I grew up in a middle class. Uh, decently middle class like lifestyle so I didn't have to worry about like so I stayed pretty sheltered from a lot of political stuff but as I started growing I started realizing there are problems in the world of course and but there was a sense of confusion as like 
I didn't know what type of identity or what type of way I should view the world and these problems through. As I started growing up in like the public education system, there were also questions of, I started becoming more rebellious because I started realizing a lot of the lessons about history that they were giving me were BS. Like there was just, it, there was either a lot of American exceptionalism and I started realizing that that American exceptionalism was a problem for Latin America. And then I started realizing it was a problem for all of the Americas. And I was like, oh, there's a certain colonial logic that exists here that has affected um, who, like Bolivia. But then I started realizing as I grew older that it also affected that Bolivians themselves had their own colonial relationship with the indigenous peoples inside there. So, um, as I started I realizing for like through this very weird like pocket of of high of high school public education that indigenous and like that indigenous peoples in some ways are like are dangerous to the very existence of the nation state because we constitute the original claim claimants to the land and our existence is a is a contestation contestation of settler settler ownership of the land because the settler myth is that there was no one here, so we can take it. But if there's someone who was there before that myth, then it just puts the whole thing out of whack. And I started realizing that happened in Canada, in the U.S., in, in Mexico, Guatemala, Puerto Rico, um, Chile, Bolivia, Peru, every, Brazil, everywhere. And I started going into, and I think living in New York City, I started meeting a bunch of indigenous peoples from across like the Americas. And that was, I think, the biggest... Um, experience i think what helped me most with living in queens and in new york city in general that there are so many indigenous nations that live here that you have to have all these experiences to kind of understand that we're all in the same struggle thank you arnold and to share a little bit uh, my story um so born being born in bolivia um, i'm adopted and um, i adopted to a parents of uh, one who is half spanish half bolivian and then my mother is um, a descendant from England with like seven generations living in this country. And so who I grew up was a very suburbanized um, community and very, you know, very Eurocentric in those regards. You may say it's diverse, but um, there's still those um, situations. Um, and, and it was until I went to college, I actually, when I went to college, I learned about my Latino roots. Um, I learned about Bolivian roots. I learned about the connections across Latin America. It was until then, I, um, and which is great, you know, learning how to dance bachata, learning the history and the cultural symbolism. It was then when I went to graduate school, and also during a time where one of my fraternity brothers um, taught me about Indianity in relation to mathematics, as he's doing as an educator, Mario Binabe. There, um, I was able to, you know, really do the self-reflection of, um, you know, who I am, not just as a Latino, but where did my ancestors come from? And from there, I was like, well, I am a descendant of a Madden people. And then from there on, wherever I go, I always try and connect with indigenous peoples first, whether that's in um, Mexico, where I'm going to Puerto Vallarta to see my parents, always trying to connect with indigenous peoples there or whether it's going to California, trying to see at least museums of indigenous people, seeing um, as much as I can um, to, broad, to broaden my, my scope of things, as well as continuously researching, reading books um, and doing research with that um, 
and that's kind of and so with all from all the beginning to like very suburban high school where you know people would draw black um ink all over bolivia because that land didn't exist to college where um i learned about uh, being a latinidad to further on my studies about myself to which led to my indigenous roots that i celebrate today for me, uh, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and Williamsburg. Uh, that kind of helped start me down my path as well, not just with my family and seeing uh, their culture and what their practices were through my grandmother and great-grandmother um, as it relates to indigeneity and the Christian-Spanish mix. Uh, you know, they had their own way of doing things, you know. Uh, so I kind of wondered where all that came from. And I also, uh, growing up in Williamsburg, had a lot of access to all these other different cultures, whether it was uh, Dominicans and seeing how they uh, did things and Jewish people in Williamsburg and how they did things. It, it kind of got me thinking about, well, where do my ancestors come from? Where do my roots come from? And so that kind of started me down my path of learning more and paying attention to my grandmother and my great grandmother and how they did things. And so I started asking my father and he did his research and he passed that knowledge down to me, uh, you know, through books. And he always claimed his indigeneity, his Taino-ness, um, so I started learning more as much as I could and got into it a little bit in college, uh, then had a bad experience with my master's, uh, Francisco, I'm sure you, you probably remember me talking about that. And so I just wanted to learn more and experience more of, uh, any Taino culture that still exists and, and people that celebrate that. Uh, my name is Alejandro Martinez uh, Kiawi. I uh, was born and raised in El Paso, Texas, which is on the west western tip of uh, Texas, uh, bordering uh, Chihuahua, Mexico, and New Mexico. Um, growing up there, uh, we saw the separation between... I, I lived through the separation of brown people, although I couldn't pinpoint it exactly for what it was. Uh, going to school with children from Mexico in elementary school. Throughout my high school, I mean, my, my uh, public school education years, um, going to school with other brown children and seeing how the border divided us even on our own campuses, you know, with all the racial or discriminatory epithets that were said back and forth. I, uh, I moved to Austin and moving far from the border, you know, it was a completely strange land. The majority of the population there is uh, Anglo, uh, your typical uh, white American city. And um, something in me over the years of growing up in there, uh, st something in me started calling me towards, you know, who I was. Because for all that time that I described, I never knew who I was. Um, I, never had a, I never had a way of, to identify myself. You know, am I Mexican? And uh, I grew up for some reason, the word Chicano, without even knowing what it meant, somehow uh, I felt was a put down, you know, for being of Mexican 
national Mexican born or Mexican descendant born in the United States, you know, millions of definitions, you know, and there's a lot of layers that were imposed throughout those years. Am I Mexican? Am I Mexican American? I know I'm not white, but who am I? He's in the book. And it was in a, the, so this took me back to El Paso out on the streets of, uh, they're along the river of South El Paso in downtown in Segundo Barrio, uh, where I met a little old man. He lived on the street on the side of the house on, in a mattress, on a mattress. And uh, it was five hours of interviewing him where, uh, you know, I asked him a final question and, he, and I said, uh, we're about to close here, the interview, because they're closing the, it was a community center, un comedor, you know, where they, they give, uh, they feed the elderly there from the barrio. I said, uh, director said, uh, he motioned to me that they're closing. So you got any last words that you'd like to share with us? And he said, yeah, you know, um, there's something that I always said, you know, I've traveled north and south. I've been on the East coast and the West coast. And, um, he said, uh, you know, here in the North, the white people, you know, uh, they call us one thing and our people in the South from Mexico call us another thing, you know? So we feel like we don't belong, but the fact is we are natives of this continent. And he said, he said it like that. He said, somos nativos de este continente. You know, I really tried my very best to stay within disciplines that are about uh, promoting our, our identities. So thankfully I've been lucky enough to work within the discipline of Chicano and Chicano studies and be an educator. Um, and be able to have control over whatever curriculum I teach and how I teach um, it. And um, so what we do is we train teachers to teach through an indigenous lens and to not be afraid to talk about indigeneity with their brown students. Um, but I think that more of the pushback that I received um, was really from my family. They didn't, they, they didn't learn understanding that part of identity, right? They grew up as very um, traditional from El Rancho you know, very, very Catholic, very traditional, and to their knowledge, you know, somos Mexicanos, and that's it. They don't understand, like, the different layers of, of what it is to be Mexican. Um, they, you know, to them, it's like something that happened way a long time ago, and it doesn't really apply to us, because now we're just Mexican. But, you know, when I first started discovering my identity as an indigenous woman and, and as a danzante, it was very difficult for my very Catholic mom to accept the fact that I wasn't a practicing Catholic anymore and that I was just really practicing indigenous um, ceremonias, you know, and that was really hard for her to, to um, process as, as my mother because everyone in my family is very Catholic. I'm the only one who isn't really. Um, and so that was hard. And so those, those conversations at the beginning of this journey for me with her were very very difficult and you know she would say why are you obsessed with people that live so long ago like the, those things happened so long ago that they don't matter today right and and so then I told her well but you're reading a bible that's thousands of years old and that's what you live by so isn't that the same thing and I also asked her like it's not that they live so long ago like we still exist and if you don't see that in like the reflection in the mirror then then we've really lost who we are and we're no longer honoring um, our grandmothers, our abuelitas, you know, who, who we've inherited this beautiful DNA from. 
And so, so um, you know, we yeah, my experience was that. I think the anti-redness that I've experienced through institutions is the same as anti-brownness and anti-blackness, right? And on all the things that we're seeing ar- happening around the country right now um, and in the, in the community where I'm from in Ventura, right now we're pushing to take down the statue of Junipero Serra, you know, who is deemed a saint by the Catholic Church, but who also was in charge of establishing missions um, throughout California and Baja California. Um, and we know what the missions did to the indigenous people of, of, of you know, the land, you know, they decimated their, their culture. Um, there was rape involved. There was uh, slavery involved. There was forced Catholicism involved. There was the erasure of their traditions, their language, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these things, right? And so right now we see the toppling of, of these oppressive statues coming down. And so as indigenous people in the county of Ventura, like that's what we're working towards right now too, because we no longer want to be dominated by these statues, right? Um, that are celebrating the genocide of our people. And so, and so, yeah, that's what we're fighting right now in society um, at large. Uh, for me, um, I re- um, most of my anti-redness experience has come from the Bolivian community itself. Um, uh, a lot of it is very much that you don't want to be Indian, nor should you be, no quieres ser Indian ni deberías serlo, because it's usually associated with poverty, alcoholism, uh, and like in education or like, like uneducatedness. And it's just, it's the antithesis of everything you want to be essentially. And it really much does feel that way whenever they talk about it, even though many of the people there are like are very indigenous looking or are indigenous and they just cover it up but they'll always make the little sly jokes about oh porque hablas moteroso like why do you speak that way why do you replace like why can't you say the o or the um e why like why do you say bolivia or like um caballo instead of caballo or bolivia and growing up in the diaspora i never had those problems but i started realizing that it was it's just ridiculous the fact that like we see we see ourselves in such a negative light and then you always have the discussions of like you shouldn't marry so you shouldn't marry someone who's like lighter skin because that'll make your kids look better and and the Bolivian community and i and i love them to death but like i and a lot of the older folks have that type of mentality of they by escaping bolivia you escape indianness and you're able to do that by and because you have either accumulated wealth or you just don't have to associate with indigenous peoples anymore. And that happened a lot after Ebo lost the election or Ebo won the election, but um, the coup happened. There was just uh, like this sort of like bubbling rampage of like, oh, it's the Indio, like, nos quería robar la elección, nos quería robar el país, like, dictadura. And I was like, you've, most of these folks live through dictatorships. They know what that entails, but somehow social democracy is dictatorship for them. Um, and it's just, it's kind of carnivalesque when you see that type of um, indigenous peoples making fun of themselves, because I've seen indigenous peoples and their parties and just like um, different events they've gone to. And they look exactly just like Bolivians at their own like dance and like at their own dance events where they get together and like drink around like circular, circular tables and just have fun. And I'm like, this isn't it. Like, there's something wrong here. Um, from the institutions, not much. It, there's more of the sense of invisibility. Um, being like, um, there's always the idea of like, you're indigenous if you're from the U.S. or Canada, but from Latin America, you're just Latino, Latinx, mestizo, 
And so there's that sense of invisibility. There, I, though I have heard stories from other indigenous Latin American folks that like a lot of native North American folks did not recognize them. There was this sense of, oh, if you're from Latin America, you're Latino and you're kind of a, you're kind of a colonizer yourself, even towards people who recognize like their own nations. So there are these complex layers that exist and I haven't experienced them all, but they've informed like the ones that I've experienced and the ones that I've heard of have informed like the way I think of indigeneity, which has to be hemispheric. It has to be continental. Thank you. And before I even share that, the anti-redness, um, growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood, I was too Latino for the white people I was growing up with. When I go to St. John's with a bunch of Latinas, I actually was too white for the Latinas. So it was just one of those situations where like navigating those spaces was pretty difficult. And then when going into Brace Minds in 80, um, yeah, definitely when something that Honor was mentioning with the dance groups, because I'm actually part of a Caporalis group, and we actually have our dance moves named after uh, like Pacha, which is a dance, dance move that's using our Mayan language or Incan language. But when it comes to politics or it comes to like the humanity of indigenous people, is either we don't talk about it, these are on our languages or cultures, and it completely erases like the culture that was so-called so celebrating, um, as well as uh, the African diaspora that's influenced in Bolivia as well that isn't talked about. Um, other places I've, I've seen and read, and, and the anti-redness is just amongst friends and family because you know they see me grow up, um, you know, a certain way in a certain environment. So when I put in, when I'm just even just um, having long hair or we wearing like these types of clothes or just um, the way we just like um, frame things from an indigenous perspective. It's just like, who are you? Um, where is the Cisco that I know? And, and it, it just creates a, an awkward atmosphere at, at points. Um, the last thing I do want to add to this is the, um, something I've noticed in society and more so in the U.S. and I don't know just speak about this where people like claim they're mestizaje or they say, um, I'm brown, I'm proud. That, at least from what I'm understanding, has a sentiment of anti-redness a bit because although you may be claiming your brownness, you're still, it's not, brown isn't uh, one of the constructed races that were initially created, white, red, black, or yellow. And so it's a very post-colonial frame that, that comforts uh, your skin tone or complexion, but it doesn't get down to the roots of the race of Anjadeity. And, that, and that's something I'm kind of questioning um, as I continue on this road. I've experienced a lot of anti-redness uh, in every aspect of my life, I think, uh, because I I'm not brown enough or I'm not red enough, I'm not this enough, I'm not that enough. I used to have long hair. Uh, I grew it out in college. Uh, to represent my indigeneity and then I went into the police department with my long hair and I got harassed for it I had to tell them it's part of my culture it's part of my religion it's part of you know my belief systems for them to leave me alone uh, then I went into teaching and same thing there I, I claim my Taino heritage and I got pushed back, oh, you're not that, you know, you're not this, you're not that, you know. So in every aspect of my life, even from my family, I got, uh, from my 
from my aunt, which is my grandmother's sister. She says, no, yo soy indio, pero tú no. <laughs> and it was funny. I was like, well, Titi, how can you be something and yet I'm not that same thing? <laughs> you know? And so in every aspect, I've kind of experienced it a little bit. Uh, also, like I said before, my master's class and I, we had this project where we talked about our, our heritage and they laughed at me. And I'm like, you know, I didn't laugh at anybody. I'm, I'm talking about my culture and, and I was disrespected that way. Uh, so in, in every aspect of my life so far, I've experienced it to some degree, uh, more or less. I guess from the very beginning, I did experience anti-redness. And uh, I think for uh, some of us, the, the connotation of red is uh, metaphorical or akin to the red road, which was like a spiritual or uh, walking in your life ways walk. And, uh, you know, I mean, essentially, yeah, uh, we're brown in different tones. And uh, red, I think, is more metaphorical, even from my, my northern friends who have spoken with. And then you get the whole mestizo myth, you know, application as well from other friends too. It's like, man, we're so mixed. It's like southern people, southern natives are the ones that, uh, or natives in general, like, you know, we're like, those are the people that have got that from the most. It's like, we're mixed. I said, well, you know what? The African diaspora is like, a lot of them have white blood from rape, colonial admixture. You don't hear them saying they're mixed. They keep saying they're black, the majority of them, you know? You know, we're like the ones that deny it the most. We're the ones that are quick to say that we are not Native American. And those are the people that I've met the most, that I've had the most confrontations with. And surprisingly, you, you go in with this illusion of being involved in ceremonies that you're going to be embraced by your northern relatives or other brown people, other natives. And there's a few people there that are going to present themselves in a, as an obstacle. They're going to fight. They're going to contest your, your assertiveness or your being there. Like, well, who are you? What tribe are you from? You know? And I think a lot of us have been seeing this on social media with uh, Karina Rodriguez, who slapped that white woman and said that she was Native American. I mean, I've seen a lot of our people putting her down. Northern Natives, they're, they're upset. Who is she to claim Native? You know, she's not, you know, it's just created a lot of, uh, you know, it just shows the state of confusion that we're in trying to find the way. And it's very true in that, you know, we have to look at history. If you, if you know history, you know yourself. If you, if you have no history, then you have no self, right? But um, if you know the history and understand the reasoning behind these laws or policies, right, about the one drop, if you have one drop of African blood, then they can, they, they'll call you, you're a black person, right? Because there can be ownership over a black person. And there could be the criminalization and the dehumanization of a black person, even if they have one drop of blood, that makes them black, right? So it's it's a way to have power over them. For and the and the and then that's going on at the same time, right? The opposite, which is very hypocritical, in that even if we have one drop of indigeneity, we don't get to claim that, right? So and a lot of our birth certificates, because we are Latinos or Hispanics, then 
on the on the section where it says race, they put down white for us. Like they completely, literally whitewash our identity the day we're born on our birth certificate, right? And so when we have to fill out paperwork, forms, the census, we have four races to choose from. Black, white, Native American, and Asian. And I think that rattles most people of, of Latin American descent. I don't even like the word Latin, right? And Hispanic, because even those terms erase our indigeneity because they're very Eurocentric. But, you know, like a lot of people will, uh, which one do I choose? I'm not black. I'm not white. Uh, I'm not Asian. And I'm not Native American. And so, the, you know, the very last thing they would ever choose is Native American, right? So they end up going with white because there's no other option. And they, they'll, like, our people will see ourselves as white before we see ourselves as uh, as Native American. And then, of course, under that, you have the option to mark that you're Hispanic, right, or Latino. Um, and so, again, that's a way to erase our memories uh, and, and erase our birthright to the land. It's about power. It's about control of the narrative. And, it, and, it's, and it's worked really, really well because as Alex was explaining, now we're infighting, right? Within our own gente, within our own communities, and then with other Northern tribes or whatnot. And who are you to claim indigeneity? And who are you this? And who are you that? And so all of these um, false borders and divisions that uh, colonialism has created We've allowed for that to colonize our minds and our spirits and our identities. And so now we're at each other questioning each other's indigeneity, right? And saying, no, you're not indigenous. I'm indigenous. You can't claim that you're Native American because this is my land. It's like, wait, where did that come from? You know, it's like, you know, like our peoples have always traveled across the continent and we're all a lot more related than we understand that we are. So, and I'll give, I'll give the example of, and I know a DNA test is not the end all for everything, but just to give you an example, when I discovered my indigeneity through a DNA test, I discovered it before then, but just what the numbers look like, it, it chunked it out. So it said the majority of my indigeneity is Mesoamerican, right? And then I have a little sliver of Navajo and a little sliver of Inca, right? Which tripped me out completely. I knew the Mesoamerican part. But to me, to go all the way from the Inca people to the Navajo people and in the middle is where what I already knew of the Mesoamerican, that just goes to tell like that migration stories of all Native peoples, right? And how even corn, maize, traveled throughout all of the continent, right? Um, and so that tells us that we're related. We're all people of the corn. One thing I noticed is that there is that opposite role between like the one drop rule for Africans and then there's the... Um, the erasure rule for indigenous peoples. Um, from what I've read, there, the one-drop rule was to create more slaves and to create more people to exclude from white society. That because you were English, you were considered pure white. Whereas with the Spaniards, you were considered a motley type of white. Because amongst Europeans, they're, they're ridiculous because they just fought amongst each other within these, like, during the medieval and, like, um, early modern ages, they just fought amongst each other on the most, on what we would consider very, like, very minuscule and, like, um, ideas. Like, oh, you're from, like, the South? Oh, you're Italian? You're Spanish? Like, oh, you're not as, like, cool as us German and Scandinavian whites or whatever. And that kind of transferred into how, like, North, like Anglo-North American and Latin American natives see, like, see themselves. 
um, with North America, you have this purity of whiteness, this purity of like blackness, this purity of nativeness. Whereas in Latin America, everyone, you can say everyone's mixed, but that's not necessarily how everyone sees each other. It ain't no mixed race utopia like um, some like some simple liberals think it is. Um, and that's the thing with Latin America. You're always trying to get away from your indigeneity. You're always trying to be less Indian. But the funny part is you're never going to be, oh, you're never going to escape Indianness, because the very fact of being mestizo means that you're, you're always indigenous. And even compared to a lot of whites, um, in Anglo whites, a lot of Latino whites are in some ways infected with either in, like contained, like, um, contaminated with an indigeneity or a blackness that's why you're latino like white that's why you're latino and but they still can claim a lot of the privileges that like a lot of anglo whites do i don't want to erase that either i think in our case it was uh uh, first it was about excluding us and keeping us marginalized uh so over the course of several centuries getting a beat down and being renamed and reclassified Spaniards specifically had uh, 20 categories of a caste system they created. And all this was done, I feel, yes, to maintain a grip on the land. And we're seeing that today. You know, the fact that they can classify us in a way that will overshadow or erase completely our ties to the land as indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere, Native Americans, that is very necessary for them to maintain control of the resources, the land, keep us as a labor pool, extracting those resources, working in their stores and mines their factories, everything. I think that's, it's, that's what it's all about is to keep us as human resource, powering their system. And uh, if we don't realize who we are, we're doing it to ourselves. I mean, we're, we're on autopilot. You know, we're doing it for them now. We're the ones fighting ourselves and each other. You know, we've been we've been programmed and rewired with a self-defeating mindset. Shoot ourselves in the foot and play along with the game because it's better to just play along than to return to living with the land and find, realize who we are in reality. So yeah, it's it's about keeping the land and the resources. Yeah. So going going to our next question, um, what messages from elders have you received that resonated with you the most? Um, I have, I'll just share a couple of them. Um, I'm so grateful and thankful that I've had, uh, had the opportunity to be surrounded by amazing elders who have guided me on this path. And I always go to them for advice and for guidance um, because, you know, I'm going to be a lifelong learner. We all are. And so we can never walk on this path thinking that we know everything because there's just no way our ancestors just had so much information that we're trying, still trying to piece together and there's no way we're going to know it all. And so, you know, one thing is to walk on this path in a humble way, in a respectful way, and to always um, recognize um, that there's always land recognition anywhere that you go, right? That you always recognize the original peoples of the land um, wherever you go and that you um, try your best to relationships with peoples and to um, with yourselves and, and, and to let them know that you're acknowledging that you're on their land and that you're asking for permission to 
to uh, practice your own traditions, you know, con, with the permission and in a humble way, you know, so that they know that you know you're on their, you know, traditional territories. So that's one thing that's always been really important to me. And I try to share that with all of my students as well, that there, there are indigenous protocols that we should try our best to to follow, right? Because if you just go into somebody's land and there's no land recognition, then you're just as bad as a settler, as a colonizer, as whatnot, right? So, so this is a way to, to kind of undo the harm of trying to erase the, the history of the fact that these lands already belong to, to people. I really, I really like that, Veronica. You know, it kind of puts that whole like POC, people of the common, instead of people of color. I thought that was, um, I also heard like people of the sun. As yeah. one. But so one of the, one, to kind of go off that uh, spirituality, it, um, what one of the elders told, told me in a group of us was that, you know, there are many races, there are many religions, but there is one spirit and that lives within all of us. And that um, spirituality is universal. I mean, what was it? I'm more, I'm a nerdy dude. So most of my like elders come from books. Um, and I've been lucky enough to find a lot of indigenous authors um who have just written who have like had the courage and who have had the strength to write entire like libraries of books which is incredible because well, for the longest time even into the 20th century we're just considered illiterate peoples who can never have hope of being anything close to intellectual nor but neither should we think about of intellectualism as the highest point of human civilization i mean we created whole civilizations that span continent that span continents without um without the the specific european rationality that uh, that came from europe that had this imp this imperial drive to it um i think if i had to give a shout out it'd be to Fausto Genaga, who is the first indigenous intellectual of bolivia um he like born in like 1895 to an indigenous community he was like the first one to um leave his community um to the university and then he wrote, I think, about like, like 15, 20 books throughout his lifetime, which is incredible. I know. And I think, and his work was the one that influenced me the most because I, from an indigenous person, one who had a radical prophetic fire to his, um, to his tone and to his writing, he still, there's a dialogue that he gave where it's, an, it's a mestizo and an Indian talking, where he's like, um, who are you, Mestizo? And the Mestizo response, well, uh, uh, what was it? I'm Spain, because what was it? The Spaniards brought me into creation. And then the Indian asked, well, where do you, but, um, what was it? What do you think of me? And it's like, oh, you're ugly. I don't want to ever be you. And then he looks at, and then like, he looks at him and he's like, but, or, but we're all together in this. And then you see like, and the dialogue kind of starts breaking down like, the internal battle that exists in like the mestizo's mind and i think and i read this when i was like 21 like 20 and it, it was one of the most influential type of dialogues because it just kind of summarized every um summarized all the research i had done until then and at the end of the dialogue um the mist like the mestizo says like but where do i belong and the in and one of the things about latin america is that the Indians hate the mestizos for being like kind of traitors or just um, playing into the colonial mind, like colonial like game of trying to eradicate indigenous people. But in this dialogue, Fausto Naga is like, 
no, you can come back to us. You never left. You, you never stopped being indigenous and we'll accept you as long as you accept us and like our tradition. With that said, that is all the time that we have. Thank you everyone for joining us. For everyone at home, make sure you like the video, subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on all our social media outlets at Latin underscore entertainment. Also, you can use, you can, also you can listen to us on our various podcast platforms that vary from Anchor, Spotify, Apple Music, and more. Additionally, check out our website for various features to promote the Latin American diaspora on Abiyala at www.latinentertainment.org. Stay tuned as we have more episodes ahead on this show. Conversamos. Yeah, yo, is it that wrong? I'm making a song, I'm taking it back for the platform that I formed. Music's helping me transform. I run the reservoir, the